Good afternoon, ladies. What an honor it is to be here with you. I've been looking forward to it. Um, my daughter, Marina, you know Marina. Put your hand up, Marina. This is the Miss America wave. Yeah. Um, I know that you all know Marina. Some of you probably know my sons as well. I have a, 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 a one son, my older son, graduated last year from the Heights, Joaquin, and I have a junior at the Heights, Carlos, and some of you may know him. Um, Looks like some of you do know Carlos, as a matter of fact, and that's good. Um, so our family has been involved in this community for a long time, and besides being Marina's dad and Carlos's dad and Joaquin's dad, in my job, as you heard, I run a company downtown. Before that, I was a college professor. Before that, before that way back, I was a classical musician. And what I want to do today is to talk about music in a very special way. And I want to start off by just playing you a tiny little bit of music. I'm going to play you about 12 pieces of concerts today. And each one is about one minute long. So they're not going to get boring. If you don't like the music you're listening to, it'll stop really, really quickly. But I'm going to get right into it, and I'm going to explain why we're looking at what we're looking at. So this is called Life's Lessons from the World's Greatest Composers. And I'm going to tell you why here in a second. So let's start right off looking at some music. Okay, the first thing I'm going to show you now before I hit this button, we're going to go to the work of uh, Dmitry Shostakovich. Now, those of you, some of you know a lot about classical music, and some of you don't know very much of classical music. It doesn't matter. I'm going to tell you all about these composers. Dmitry Shostakovich is a 20th century composer from Russia. He was mostly during the communist days of the Soviet Union. And this is one movement from his sixth symphony. I'm going to play a little bit of it. Great piece of music. And then after that, you're going to see why I'm playing this particular piece of music. showing you this. This is actually from the Barcelona Symphony Orchestra, and it was recorded about 20 years ago, and 25 years ago, and here's the reason I'm showing that to you right now. See, this is what happened when time goes by, right? And then all the hair comes off, but I'm still the same guy. And you know, this is proof. Marina didn't believe me that I actually ever did have hair. Anyway, when I was in this orchestra, I learned something about classical music that I didn't know before. See, when I was your age, all I wanted to be was a professional French horn player. That was it. From the time I was nine years old, all I wanted to do was to grow up and play in a professional orchestra. And, and I did, which was great. I mean, it took a lot of twists and turns. I didn't wind up finishing college till I was 30 years old. Don't try that at home, kids, because I don't want to get in, in trouble with your parents. But when I was in the orchestra playing here, I learned the true secret of this, which is not just that the music sounds nice. I learned that every single piece of classical music, every good piece of music has a secret embedded inside it. Every single piece of music has a special message, a lesson that you can learn. And so I'm going to show you six great pieces of music today, six kind of examples, 
And each one of them has a secret on how you can live a better life. And what I want you to take away from this is that every time that you listen to great music for the rest of your life, I want you to learn about it and listen and say a prayer about it. And you can actually get secrets on how to live the best life from this secret encoded music. Okay, that's what the purpose of this is all going to be. Now, by the way, let me get back to this, uh, 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 to this great question, which is how come I actually stopped being a musician? <clears throat> I'm going to tell you about that here in a second, because we're going to look at the second question, which is my favorite composer. My favorite composer, and, and this is going to tell us the, the first big secret. This is music. Um, actually, here, the, let me get to the six lessons first. And these are the things that we're going to get through. But let me go right to the music. Don't read all that, because we're going to come back to it here in a second. I'm going to get to my favorite composer, who is Johann Sebastian Bach. Okay, now, Bach lived between 1685 and 1750. He was one of the greatest, most prolific composers in world history. He, he, he wrote and published a thousand pieces of music in his 65 years, and he also had 20 kids. So he's like an Oakcrest dad, right? I mean, he's like, he was uh, uh, unbelievably productive, okay? And I want you to hear one of his greatest pieces of music. This is the, the St. Matthew Passion. This is for chorus and orchestra, and it is set to the... To, the, 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 the Gospel of St. Matthew at the very end, the Passion of Christ. And you're going to see why this is my favorite composer. I'm going to come back and tell you the secret behind it, which is also the reason I left music, believe it or not. sacred head, now wounded, which is obvious what he's referring to um, from the Passion of the Christ. Now, Bach loved music. Bach loved his family. He had a lot of family to love. But really the center of Bach's life, the very center of everything he did, was Bach's Christian faith. Every piece that he wrote, whether it was for strings or for chorus or for keyboard, um, he, he wrote at the very end, Solo Deo Gloria. Why? What does this mean? Glory to God alone. It didn't matter if it was a religious piece or it wasn't a religious piece. Everything was dedicated to God. And near the end of his life, he was asked why he wrote music. And, and this was a huge deal for me when I was back in the orchestra and I was playing in the orchestra. I heard this quote from my favorite composer. Why do you write music, he was asked. And he said, the aim and final end of all music, the aim and final end of all music is nothing less than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the soul. Hmm. Now, when I heard that, I said, I want to be able to say that about my work. See, this is really the purpose in life with our work, whether it's raising kids or going out and working in the market and doing a job, whether you're a musician or a professor or 
a mom to eight kids. This is really what it's all about, is glorifying God and refreshing the souls and serving people around us. I said that and I said, I want to be able to say that. But I kind of didn't feel that when I was a professional musician, believe it or not. I mean, being a musician is great. But I kind of felt like I wasn't serving people enough. You hear all the time here at Oakcrest and in your family life around the dinner table about apostolate, right? Apostolate. You want to, you want to serve God. You want to serve others. How do you do that best? I felt that I could do that best by talking about other things, by, by learning about how the world worked and explaining that to other people. So I left music for that reason because I felt I could be more like Bach, not a, as a musician, than I could as a musician. Here's the first big lesson. If you want to be like Bach, serve others and serve God and always be remembering that that is the secret of your work. Now, this is not just Bach who said this. Many wise people, many saints have said this. Read this. This is St. Jose Maria Escrivá, who, of course, is the founder of Opus Dei, and the prelature of Opus Dei. Here, here's what he wrote um, in, in 1958. God is calling you to serve him in the ordinary material and secular activities of human life. He waits for us every day in the laboratory, in the operating theater, in the army barracks, in the university chair, in the factory, in the workshop, in the fields, in the home, and he should have said, raising your kids, because that's what he meant, and in all the immense panorama of work, the refreshment of the soul and the glory of God. That's the purpose of work. That's the magic and the secret behind that first piece of music. Now, not all music is happy like that. There's a lot of pain in music as well. You've all heard that artists can be a little crazy. We all understand that. And, and a lot of composers that have had a lot of big problems in their life. And that's true. And so that's the next secret that I want to talk about is, is actually pain. Now, pain is kind of a difficult subject because all of us experience it in our, in our lives. I mean, you're in high school and you know, high school can be a tricky time. You know, being a grown-up can be a tricky time too. I, I'm telling you, I know it seems hard to believe, but all of us experience pain. What's the point of pain? Is it something you should just avoid as much as you possibly can, or is there some deeper purpose to it? The secret that I want to talk to you next actually comes from the great Russian composer Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Some of you have heard of Tchaikovsky because his most famous piece that he ever wrote was The Nutcracker Suite. He also wrote Swan Lake. He wrote all these really famous ballets uh, for the Russian ballet. And you know, he was the most successful, most famous composer of 19th century Russia. He was like, uh, he was a huge rock star in, in late 19th century. He would walk down the street and people would say, maestro, you know, I just saw the new ballet. It's the most brilliant thing ever. But he was racked by frustration and discouragement and, and he was insecure and he was depressed a lot. He really felt a lot of pain. I want to give you an example of, you know, what he said. He lived between 1840 and 1893. Here's a quote of Tchaikovsky the greatest composer of his generation. There are hours, days, weeks, and months in which everything looks black when I'm tormented by the thought that I'm forsaken, that no one cares for me. You know, it's weird, right? If you were the most famous composer of your whole generation, you wouldn't think that, right? You never know. You never know what somebody else is going through, do you? It's actually kind of important to keep that in mind. So how did he use that pain? 
He was very depressed when he was writing his symphonies. You hear his ballets, you know, you've heard his ballets before, but his symphonies were really his greatest pieces. He wrote six symphonies. And near the end of his life, in 1893, he was working on his sixth symphony called the Patatique Symphony, and he hated it. He was going through a really kind of a hard time in his life, and he kept tearing up copies of it and throwing away. He, he, he wrote 20 different versions and threw them all away. I wish I could have just one and call it mine. <laughs> you know that every single one was a masterpiece, but it wasn't right, it wasn't right, it wasn't right. Until finally, he finally finished it, and he succeeded in writing this. This is the last movement of Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. 60 seconds. piece of instructions for the musicians in Italian is morindo, which means dying. And in point of fact, Tchaikovsky knew he was dying when he wrote this. He, uh, he actually wrote sections of the Greek or the Russian Orthodox funeral mass into this as well. And nine days after it was performed for the first time, he in fact died. He wrote this, he was completely motivated by his sadness for the world, but he dedicated his sadness to this great beauty. Now, you're sad sometimes, so am I. I can't write that. I wish I could. But all of us can do something. Great saints forever have used their sadness for the good of humanity. Let me give you an example. St. Teresa of Calcutta. Now, everybody knows that Mother Teresa was a great saint. What was she famous for? feeding the poor, caring for the lepers, the lowest of the low and the poorest place in the whole world, St. Teresa took care of these people. Where did the motivation come from to, to connect with the poorest of the poor? We learned after St. Teresa died that she was plagued with a lot of sadness in her life. You think that somebody who's, again, such a saint and so world famous and, and who was so appreciated by you know, kings and princes and popes, that this is a person who would be always in a good humor, right? Not so much. Here's what she wrote to her spiritual director before she died. There's so much contradiction in my soul, such deep longing for God, so deep that it is painful, a suffering continual, to feel not wanted by God. Now, again, that's different than the kind of sadness that you feel, but the key thing to keep in mind is that everybody, great or not, feels sadness sometimes. The question is, what are you going to do with it 
How are you going to dedicate it? The next time you feel like you're maybe at the edge of a kind of sadness that you don't like, offer it up. Offer it up like Tchaikovsky or even better like, like St. Teresa. This is lesson number two. This is secret number two. Pain comes with life. Maybe not as much as St. Teresa, but it comes with life. Use it. Use it for, to build the kingdom of God. Now, that's actually a special case. That's a special case of, uh, of weakness in our lives. And now I want to talk about how people, the next big secret that comes from music is how you have weaknesses, things you're not so good at. I want to tell you that music tells you that this is actually the source of your strength. And this is kind of a story that I want to build right now. And I'm going to show you a couple of different clips of music right now. I'm going to start with the, the music of another famous composer from his time named Franz Josef Haydn. Haydn lived uh, at the end of the 18th century, as a matter of fact. He was born in 1732, and he died in 1809. Very famous as a teacher, as a composer. He traveled all over Europe. Everybody recognized him. He was much beloved. And he wrote a lot of symphonies and a lot of choruses, and he wrote, a lot. He wrote for all different kinds of music. But he especially loved his string quartets. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds of Haydn's string quartet. This is a string quartet that he wrote. Um, in 1797, and I want you to just get the sound into your head, so you, and you'll know what I'm talking about here in a second. So Haydn's String Quartet, 1797, 30 seconds. you to hear from that is a certain style. It just sounds like great classical music. He was a wonderful composer. He was also a great teacher. And now I'm going to play you a string quartet written two years later by his greatest student. Okay? And I'm going to tell you afterward who that great student is. But the thing to notice is that this is a string quartet that sounds just like that one. As a matter of fact, the styles of these two composers, teacher and student, were almost identical. Okay? So this is his greatest student. So that sounds a lot alike. You wouldn't even really be able to tell them apart. Now, here's the interesting thing to keep in mind. That student was Ludwig von Beethoven, who was a young guy. He, had been, he was in his 20s when he wrote that piece of music. He wrote music just like his teacher. Um, now, Beethoven, by the way, they didn't have a very good relationship. Haydn and Beethoven didn't. I'm, I'm going to give you an example of how not to talk about your teachers. Okay? So 
there they are. That's Haydn on the, on the left. And his advice to Beethoven was, you know, do yourself a favor. Instead of just signing your name, say, pupil of Haydn. Because <laughs> then everybody would know you're important. And Beethoven's answer was, I never learned anything from him. <laughs> so don't talk about your teachers that way, kids. It's, uh, it's not nice, even if you think that. So anyway, Beethoven, around this time, when he wrote that string quartet that I just played for you, he was having a problem. He was writing to a lot of his friends, and we have lots of letters from him. He was complaining that there was a strange buzzing in his ears. He couldn't get it out of his head. It was like flies or bees or something. He couldn't get it out of his head. A year after that, he started to lose his hearing. Three years after that, 50% of his hearing was gone. And by the year 1816, he was completely deaf. Now, he had been writing this conventional music that sounded just like his teacher this whole time. Why? Because that's what music sounded like. He was a professional composer. You know, he would play the piano for money and conduct orchestras and, and write music, and that's how people paid him. And so he would write the kind of music that everybody wanted to hear. And that was all he knew how to do. And then he went deaf. This is terrible, right? This is a bit, the worst weakness that can possibly happen to you if you're a professional musician is going deaf. Here's the weird thing. He goes completely deaf, and he keeps writing music. So years after he's deaf, he keeps writing music. He doesn't go out of the house very much. He can't play the piano anymore because he can't hear. He can't conduct orchestras because he doesn't know if the orchestra is playing or not. But he keeps writing based on what was in his head years before. And something strange started to happen. Beethoven's music started to change according to the imagination and his solitude. His weakness started to form strange kind of uh, uh, phantasmoric musical genres, new music that nobody had ever heard before. It was so strange, the music that started coming out, that nobody could really listen to it seriously in the time when he was writing it. So let me give you an idea of what, when he was deaf, here's what it looked like, what he was writing. That's on the left. That would get you like a, a C minus in, if you turn this in because it's so messy, right? And he said, tones sound and roar and storm about me until I have set them down in notes. This is a guy who's completely inside his head. And every composition that he wrote sounded stranger and stranger to people around him. His composition, this was written by a, a composer, a British composer at the same time, his compositions have partaken of the most incomprehensible wildness. His imagination seems to have fed upon the ruins of his sensitive organs. So now you want to know what it sounded like, right? I'm going to play you the last string quartet. You just heard a string quartet that he wrote. I'm going to now you play one that he wrote 10 years after he went deaf. Okay? So this is as weird as it got, and it's pretty weird stuff. This is the Grossa Fuga um, from, from Beethoven in 1826, just months before he died.
that's really weird by the standards of that day. And nobody could have ever heard anything like it. So, so what did people say? On the left, the critics said it's completely incomprehensible. Either Beethoven is really sick, or he's gone crazy, or he just hasn't heard in such a long time that this is unlistenable music. But then a weird thing happened. A bunch of new composers started hearing this music and said, oh, this is the direction music is going. Because they saw the genius that was behind this that came from not being influenced by anything that was going on. The weakness that was Beethoven's deafness actually changed music. Here's a, the composer up on the top here. This is Richard Wagner. He, he wrote a lot of operas at the time. He listened to this. He based his whole genre of music on the stuff that Beethoven wrote when he was deaf. As recently in the bottom is Igor Stravinsky. He, 19, he lived until 1975, and at the end of his life, he heard that music that you just heard, and he said, it's an absolutely contemporary piece of music. Written in 1816 and in 1975, it was still the most modern thing that this guy could possibly imagine. Beethoven is one of the greatest composers who ever lived, not because of the stuff he did before he was deaf, but because what happened after he was deaf when nobody could influence him. What's the big lesson from this? You have weaknesses. You have things you don't like. You have things that embarrass you. Catastrophic things might even come from you. There's a reason for each one of these weaknesses. Your strength is somewhere in there. The key thing is for you to find it. Find the thing where you're weak and make it into a way that you can bless others and do something that's new and inventive. And for sure, it's in there. It's maybe not Beethoven. I wish we could all be Beethoven. But it's something. You just have to find it. Don't regret your weakness. Use it. Next. I'm going to talk about new things a little bit more now. And <clears throat> I'm going to talk about being open to new things. You know, well, maybe that last piece sounded a little weird to you. I'm going to play some stuff for you that sounds really weird. Why? Because I want to make the case that embedded in the secret of a lot of music is that becoming more open to new types of experiences makes you a better, more interesting, and more inventive person. When I was your age, when I was in high school or a junior or a senior in high school, um, I, I, I happened across a record of a, an Indian musician it, from India. And I didn't know, but he was the greatest composer of Indian music of his entire generation. All I knew is I listened to it and it sounded really mysterious and I couldn't get it out of my head. And here's what it was.
the composer of that is the guy playing the, the thing that looks like a guitar. It's called a sitar. And he's, the, he's basically the Mozart of India. He died a couple of years ago. The most revered, almost religiously loved uh, musician of his, of his entire generation. Here's, here's what he looks like and here's what he says. I tried to give my music a spiritual quality very deep in the soul, which does something even if you're not realizing it or analyzing it. That's the duty of the music. It sounds sort of like Bach, doesn't it? He was a very, very religious guy. He wrote that. Okay, so I heard this music for the first time, and it completely captured my imagination. Now imagine if you had a CD of that, and you took it home, and you started blasting it down in your room. What would your parents say? They'd be like, something's wrong with the kid, right? And, and that's what my, my parents got really super worried that I was listening to this kind of freaky Eastern music. You know, turn down that noise, you know. What's wrong with them? Kind of, and I remember, it was sort of a scandal in my house. But I started saving up all my money and and going to the special record store. Records, by the way, you don't know what these are. They're big pieces of black pieces of plastic that had music on them back when back when I was your age. And and it was kind of it was kind of an eye-opening time for me because I got very interested in that kind of music, and it, it led to a lifelong interest in the country of India, where I travel now. I travel there a lot, and it opened my eyes to a new way of thinking. A new new way of understanding new sounds, as a matter of fact. I'm going to show you a different kind of new sound, too, and my point is going to be the same. Openness to these new sounds can actually change your life. This is music by, now this is music back from Europe, from a composer uh, who lived from 1908 to 1992 named Olivier Messiaen, a French composer. This is going to sound different because this is not tonal music. This is atonal music. This is something that's going to be even maybe a little more controversial and new for you. This is from the, the Quartet for the End of Time by Olivier Messiaen. That sounds really weird to you. You're probably thinking, what's wrong with this guy who writes this music, right? But there's a surprise behind this. There's a secret behind this, too. This composer, Olivier Messiaen, um, he wrote this when he was in a Nazi prisoner of war camp. The reason he used that instrumentation, clarinet, violin, cello, and piano, is also the only instruments that were in the prisoner of war camp. He wrote this it's based on bird calls. Why? Because he had a PhD in ornithology, and he wanted to make it sound like bird calls, as a matter of fact. But that's really where the secret begins, not where the secret ends. It's called the, 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 the Quartet for the End of Time because it was scored to, it was written for the 10th book of, the 10th chapter of the book of Revelation to this passage. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars 
of fire. Why would he say such a thing? Because the single most important thing in his life was his love for Christ. He was a Catholic, just like we are. And that was the be-all and end-all for Olivier Messiaen. He gets out of the prisoner of war camp, and he was a famous composer at the time. He taught at the Paris Conservatory, which was the most important conservatory in the world, and, and everybody wanted him to write compositions for them, because not all of it sounded as weird as that. As a matter of fact, he had offers, like most of his friends, to go write movie scores in Hollywood. That's how you made the big bucks, was to move to the United States and, and write movie scores for Hollywood. Why didn't he do that? Because he wanted to stay in church. He became a church organist. He spent the rest of his life in his local parish playing the organ instead of making a fortune in Hollywood. Why? Because he wanted to spend every day for the rest of his life in the real, with the real presence of Christ. Hmm. Imagine if we could dedicate our careers to that. That's a secret in there. I would not have gotten that if I had not had the openness to this type of music. That sounds like the work of a, a godless hippie bohemian. It's not. It's somebody who's a better Catholic than we are. <laughs> and that's what can reside behind any particular amount of work. But you have to open your heart to new things. It's hard to do that, you know. Um, my son, Joaquin, who's in first year in college now, you know, he, he has a hard time with that. We were at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and, and you know, we're looking at a, an installation, a modern art installation. It was something, you know, like, you know, a bunch of toilet seats on the wall or something, you know, something really modern. And, and I said, he said, what do you think of it, Dad? And I said, I, I think it's okay. I said, what do you think? And he said, I think it's satanic. <laughs> See, that's not open, right? <laughs> Openness says, maybe there's more there than meets the eye. Ask yourself, am I open to new things? Hmm. Don't be afraid. Try something new. Be free. And now let's talk a little bit more about freedom. If you want freedom in music, what's the most free type of music of all? And the answer, of course, is, is jazz. Jazz, pure improvisation. Nothing written down, right? Here is uh, one of the greatest jazz performers who ever lived. His name is Charlie Parker who lived um, for the early part of the 20th century. He, he, died from, he lived from 1920 to 1955. He died when he was 34 years old. A lot of jazz musicians from the day, they, they died because they used alcohol and drugs, and that obviously poses real problems. He died prematurely. But one of the greatest saxophone players of his generation, one of the great jazz players, and that's, that's, by the way, that's Messien. <laughs> my faith is the grand drama of my life. I'm a believer, so I sing the words of God to those who have no faith. No godless bohemian. True freedom. I don't want that. I'm not going to do that. This is Charlie Parker. They teach you there's a boundary line to music. <laughs> he said, but man, there's no boundary line to art. So let's talk about pure freedom. I want to listen to one minute of this guy playing when he was really in his element.
Sounds really free. Sounds like there's no rules, nothing going on. Just making it up as it goes along, right? Well, actually not right. Here's what the music looks like. That's the sheet music there on the left. That's a tune called, there's a song called Hot House by a composer named Todd Dameron. Now, it's a little hard to read, especially if you're music students. The reason is because you have to play the tune, but you have to then improvise over the chords that are written above the tune. This is all rules. <laughs> this is all boundaries. And here's the secret embedded in the music of great jazz. Freedom is always constrained by mastery and self-discipline. That's true freedom. See, all great jazz musicians can say, I just play whatever I want, man. No, you don't. If you play outside those chords, you sound like an idiot and you get booed off the stage. It takes huge amounts of study, huge amounts of self-mastery, tons of self-discipline. And that's the, really the secret to a good life for all of us. If you want to be free, you have to live within your own rules, the rules of your morality, the rules of your faith. Then you can be a master yourself, and then you are truly free. Of course, this is the gospel. <laughs> this is what we learn from the saints. This is what we learn from the Savior, that to be free, you have to be a master yourself. That's the secret that's embedded in all great jazz music as well. Now, a lot of saints have said this as well. Let me, let me t t show you one saint that you know. This is uh, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> and he makes this great allusion uh, in one of his books. He talks about... If you had a bunch of boys playing soccer on the top of a mountain, right, and they were on the top, sheer cliffs on every side, going down thousands of feet, they wouldn't play soccer up there. They'd be lying down in the middle of the field in sheer terror. They'd be trembling in terror. But if you put fences up around the edge of the cliff, they'd play soccer with complete freedom. They'd feel safe. What made them feel safe? It was the lack of the ability to throw yourself off. It was the constraint against the freedom. Why? Because therein lies your own true freedom. Obviously, that's just a metaphor, but the better metaphor comes from Charlie Parker. Do you want to be free? Live within restraint. Now, I want to talk about fear because we were just talking about freedom. And, you know, fear is something that we all live with, something that you live with, and something that I live with. And I want to get to my second favorite composer now, which is Anton Bruckner. Anton Bruckner was the, the, one of the greatest composers who ever lived from 1824 to 1896. He lived in Vienna. He wrote for huge orchestras. He was actually nuts. He was considered to be kind of a crazy guy. As a matter of fact, there was one point when they were, he read in the newspaper that they were excavating the, the bones of his favorite composer, who was Franz Schubert, who had lived you know, 50 years earlier. And they knew that they were digging him up out of the cemetery one night. And so he, he snuck up in the cemetery and he saw that the guys were digging up the bones. And as soon as they pulled out his skull, Anton Bruckner went bursting into the room and put his hands on the skull because he thought he could be a better composer just by touching this guy's skull. That's how crazy Anton Bruckner was. Right? So this guy Bruckner, he wasn't afraid, however, of, of showing his true feelings. He was known for when he really liked somebody to just burst out that he loved the person, which was kind of not done, sort of weird. He also wrote music that was way beyond the boundaries of what anybody thought was appropriate without fear. He was called, by the way, half simpleton, half god by his other composers because his music was so strange, it was so absolutely fearless. 
So I'm going to give you 90 seconds of how this music sounded. By the way, here's, this is Bruckner himself before he died. And this is what the, the newspaper said about his music. Bruckner composes like a drunkard. Huh. He actually wasn't a drunkard. He was a very serious Catholic. Well, that, you can do both probably. But the point being that uh, he wasn't both. time, for the time, that was completely radical. And he knew it was crazy, by the way. He knew it was nuts, but he said, what can I do? God told me to write it. <laughs> do you, are you willing to do that? You know, we all have these fears of things of being unconventional, right? And, and you know, let's be frank. You're walking around in life today. You're going to go to college. Your lifestyle is completely unconventional. I mean, you're, you're Catholic, I mean, you're going to go to college, and you're going to be a real Catholic, right? And people are going to say, what's wrong with you? Come on, man. It's Sunday morning. Let's go do something. Going to Mass, right? There are things that you're not going to do that everybody else does. There are things that you're going to do that nobody else has even heard of. That's being an unconventional person. And you're all going to face these fears of maybe being out of the mainstream, and we all face these fears all the time. I've had these fears my whole life, you know, doing something radical and new. It's so scary for me. Uh, Twelve years ago, I'll give you an example. Twelve years ago, um, my wife um, and Marina's mom, we had this idea. Well, actually, my wife had this idea. We wanted to adopt a baby, right? And we had kids, but we wanted more. And, and so we, we, we decided we are going to go to China and adopt a baby. And I said, great, you know, we'll go and we'll do the paperwork. And, you know, we waited a couple of years because it takes a long time. But then when we got close to the end, um, something happened, which was it turns out that my wife, who's not, who was not born in the United States, she's Spanish, and she wasn't a citizen back then. And we learned from the government that only an American citizen could do the adoption. And furthermore, my parents had died, and, and her parents were really far away. We had no family. So somebody had to stay with our other kids because we had little kids. And so it turned out I had to go by myself to adopt a baby in China. And I, we were working with this company that did it, and they had adopted 4,000 kids, and not one time had a single dad gone to pick up a baby. They, they weren't, you know, dads are, we're all really good-hearted, but we're not so good with kids. It's like, I don't know, I guess I left her on the bus, so I don't know. You know, we, we're just, we do our best, right? But we're not, you know, moms are more competent, typically, with this kind of thing. I don't know, you got to feed them every day? I didn't know that. You know, that sort of thing. So, um, 
So it turned out I had to go by myself. I had to go by myself. Okay, so I get the report beforehand, and a picture of the little girl. It's going to be our little girl. And, and on a report it says she's never seen a man. She's never seen, and I, like a guy with a beard. And, and, and I said, I don't know what I do. And so my wife says, I don't know. I got to shave off the beard. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it'll look like a lady. I, I don't know. And so, so I start doing anything that I can. But, but it says in the thing that anytime that there's anybody who's new and different, she starts screaming. And I'm thinking, this is going to be hell. Actually, like hell or purgatory, maybe. Where I'm going to be you know, tooling around, traveling around China in the heat of the summer with a little girl who's mortably afraid of me. And so I'm not looking forward to it. I'm incredibly afraid of what's going to happen. But what are you going to do? I had to go. I get on the plane, and I'm like, I'm saying Hail Mary's the whole time. I'm thinking, you know, Lord, just make this, you know, get me through it. Get me through it. So we get to the moment where they're going to bring us the babies, right? And they call me first. And we're in a group of 15 people, all, you know, like mom and dad, mom and dad, mom and dad, grandparents, me alone, right? And, you know, the Chinese official says, is your wife dead? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm here alone. Okay, fine. And so I go into the room, and the, the lady comes, this nurse comes with the baby, and they're like really freaked out because they know she's going to start screaming, and they put her in my arms, and she looks up at me, right? And she grabs my shirt, and her eyes are like two little pieces of coal, and she didn't cry. I'm like, that's weird. Just staring at me. And then I have to sign some papers. And so the nurse comes back to pick her up while I sign the papers. And she starts just screaming when they try to take her out of my arms. And she wouldn't let me put her down for a month. We were like, we were like anybody who touched her, anybody who came near her except me, from that second, she'd start screaming. That was Marina. Fear is funny. Fear is funny. New things are funny. Are you willing to do something big and new? Are you willing to jump into something that you've never tried before? It might not be as weird as Bruckner, where the local paper is going to say that you're out of your mind and awful, but it might be something as good as Marina. You never know. We're almost done because you've got to go back to class, but I'm going to give you one more little lesson before we finish. You know, we have a tendency, one more secret. We have a tendency to think that, um, and I'm going to roll through these, you know, by the way, first lesson, sanctify your work. Second lesson, use your pain. Third, your, your weakness is your strength. Fourth, openness is how you will become the person you want to be. Fifth, true freedom comes from discipline and self-restraint. Sixth, go crazy. Try it. Don't be afraid. And here's the last one. People will often tell you that there's some sort of big difference between truth and beauty. I mean, beauty is what we've been listening to, but truth is something else. That's actually completely wrong. I want you to listen to one more thing, and this goes back to my favorite composer. This is Johann Sebastian Bach. This is a cantata number 147. Um, it was written in 1716 for Advent. Uh, you know this piece. You've all heard it. It's called Yesu Joy of Man's Desiring. And I want to finish with this and one quick lesson as we listen to the end of this.
Word was made flesh. We beheld His glory. John 1.14. That's beauty. But that's truth. Remember, as Christians, as Catholics, we get truth and we get beauty every single day. Praise God. Thank you.